Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So, obviously, still in the midst of pandemic, one of the things that has been in the news a lot and certainly weighing heavily on my mind is all of the work that's being done by emergency and hospital medical workers. And so that kind of like was what I was going to look into for this week's show. Like I started researching uh, to do kind of a brief history of emergency medicine, which is still in the works, but I got a little sidetracked because there is so much that I found myself like struggling to get a cohesive and organized thing going on. But in the midst of doing all of that, I stumbled across, and I'm sorry because it's another French topic, um, Dominique Jean Leray, who is a really, really interesting historical figure that I had not known anything about. I'm kicking myself for reasons I will reveal at the end that I didn't know about this before we were in France. Um, but uh, he created something called a flying ambulance. It's not literally airborne. <laughs> Um, but his work was largely informed first by his medical schooling, but then also by his work with the French army. And so we are going to talk about him today and how he developed an ambulance system that even today, the systems he set up in an adapted form are still essentially used. And a lot of his medical developments that he created are still used even outside of you know, like a combat zone type medic situation. So we're going to jump in on uh, Baron Dominique Jean Leray. Dominique Jean Leray was born in Baudillon, France, near the Pyrenees, on July 8, 1766. He had an older brother, Charles-Francois Hilaire. The family was really not wealthy. Dominique Jean's early education was given to him by the local priest, Abbe Grasset, until his father died. And then at that point, Dominique Jean was sent to Toulouse to study medicine with an uncle, Dr. Alexis Loray. There's some discrepancy in exactly when that happened based on which biography you're looking at. There are some sources that place the move to Toulouse when he was 11, others when he was 13. Regardless, in this path of study, Dominique Jean was following not only in his uncle's footsteps, but also in those of his older brother, who had become a surgeon. Uh, yeah, there's... A lot of discrepancy in dates when you start really looking at biographies of him. There is a, a biography that I looked at a lot written in the 1860s that the date they give for his birth is impossible. <laughs> um, like he would have been like 11 doing some of his most important stuff. Like there are, are it's a little bit tricky to tease out exact dates on some of his, his, um, key points until he really gets in the military when records were really carefully taken. Um, Uncle Alexi, who was the surgeon major at Hospital of Grave and an associate at the Royal Academy of Surgery in Paris, was very aware that not only was he giving his nephew a medical education, but that he was also stepping into the role of surrogate father. And he actually told Dominique Jean when he first arrived that he would be his adopted son. After a number of years with his uncle, when he was 21, Larray moved to Paris. There, he became an assistant surgeon in the French Navy, and soon he was departing from the port at Brest aboard a sloop called La Vigilante. His work with the Navy was pretty fraught. He was nearly shipwrecked almost immediately. 
The seven months that he served aboard this ship gave him really strong opinions about the importance of hygiene and also taught him a great deal about the treatment of injuries and ailments in really tight quarters. By 1789, the young doctor was back in Paris, and that was just as the violence of the French Revolution was really creating an increased need for, the, for some emergency medical care. He also became a student of Pierre-Joseph Bessot during this time, who was heading up the teams that were treating injuries from the riots and the fighting at the Hotel Dieu and Hotel des Invalides. Desault was the first professor of clinical surgery in France, and he was both beloved and renowned. So Larray was basically getting on-the-job, cutting-edge education in medicine under his tutelage. In the early 1790s, Dominique Jean joined France's Army of the Rhine and reported for duty at Strasbourg on April 1st of 1792. And this is where he made the impact for which he's probably best known today. But to talk about that with a bit of context, we'll need to back up just a little bit all the way through ancient history. So the concept of an ambulance, and by that we mean a vehicle that could rapidly transport injured or sick people to treatment, is nothing new. That word ambulance is also used in some of Larray's writing uh, later on to suggest uh, like an itinerant hospital. And one of the primary drivers for the development of a system of carrying the wounded throughout history has been war. One of the earliest instances we know of when conflict led to moves forward in emergency care was thanks to Alexander the Great's father, Philip II of Macedon. During the 4th century BCE, he made the decision that his deployed troops would have medical personnel who traveled with them to treat injuries and illnesses as they occurred during campaigns. Jumping forward from there to the 6th century, Mauritius, emperor of Byzantine, similarly ensured that his fighting troops were accompanied by medical assistance. In the case of Mauritius, his army set up tents that were adjacent to the field of battle that were designed for emergency care. And specially designated horsemen stood by with saddles that had been designed to carry the injured to caregivers waiting in those tents. Centuries later, a similar system was employed during the Crusades, though wagons were used at that point in time instead of single horsemen. In the 15th century, the idea of dedicated wagon teams for carrying those injured in military battles caught on throughout Europe. Queen Isabella of Spain is the first we know of who created a fleet of wagons that had been designed and constructed just for this task. But soon, a lot of other nations had incorporated similar vehicles into their militaries, and the idea of medical personnel traveling with military troops had become a lot more common. But a more formalized plan for ambulances in the field was developed by Dominique Jean Larray in 1792. Larray, at this point, was a surgeon traveling with Napoleon's army, and he saw firsthand not only how brutal battle could be, but that often wounded soldiers were left suffering for hours, sometimes as long as a full 24-hour day or longer, before they could be moved by available personnel. While those other militaries that we have been talking about over time had adopted the idea that they should have medical personnel standing by and even vehicles to transport the wounded, None of those protocols were designed to ever be used on an active battlefield. Those features would swoop in once the fighting was over. And so that meant that not only were those injured soldiers going without treatment as they lay on the battlefield, they also weren't getting any food or water. Larray wrote about the problems and obstacles of caring for the battle wounded and their grave consequences in his notes. Quote, I now first discovered the inconveniences to which we were subjected in moving our ambulances or military hospitals. 
The military regulations required that they should always be one league distant from the army. The wounded were left on the field until after the engagement and were then collected at a convenient spot to which the ambulances speeded as soon as possible. But the number of wagons interposed between them and the army and many other difficulties so retarded their progress that they never arrived in less than 24 or 36 hours so that most of the wounded died for want of assistance. Yeah, a league, by the way, which he references, is almost 3.5 miles and more than 5.5 kilometers. So these makeshift hospitals were set up quite far away from the actual battle. We should note that while witnessing the misery of battlefield injury spurred Leray to developing a solution, it was certainly not as though he was the first person to realize that militaries could do better in caring for their war wounded. Many nations recognized that there was a huge problem in that soldiers with treatable injuries were often lost simply because they could not get to life-saving treatment in time. The French government had issued a call for some sort of solution to this problem several years before Leray even joined the army. We'll talk about Leray's ambulance after we first pause for a quick sponsor break. The word ambulance is rooted in the French word ambulant, which means itinerant or traveling. And when Leray designed a vehicle that would allow soldiers to be carried from the field, he called it the ambulance volante, which translates to flying ambulance. The idea that flying meant speedy. Leray's ambulance was a two-wheeled carriage similar to those that were used in the French military to transport weaponry because he had noticed while watching active battles just how quickly and nimbly those artillery carts could move. The design of the new medical cart was agile enough to get through tight spaces, though it also included a full covering for the soldiers being transported. There was a mattress inside which sat on a base, and that base, which Leray called a floor, could easily slide in and out of the ambulance enclosure using a system of rollers. When it was tested on the battlefield at Limbourg, it worked exactly as Leray and his superiors had hoped. Larger versions of the flying ambulance were also developed, and various adaptations were eventually made to suit difficult terrains, including switching out the horses that drew them for mules and even camels, as the location and the climate warranted. But Leray went far beyond merely developing a vehicle. He actually came up with a comprehensive battlefield medical system. Under Leray's system, surgeons or medics, which he collectively called escouade volante, or flying squads, would move onto the field even while active fighting was happening to give initial treatment to soldiers and assess the severity of their wounds. Then, the ambulance would cart the injured away from the battle. And the next stop was a tent hospital set up adjacent to the battlefield, again, kind of borrowing from history there. And then, if that soldier needed additional treatment beyond what was available in that itinerant tent hospital, he would be taken to a more standard permanent hospital. A key element in this is that as Leray developed the system, he became the first to establish a triage hierarchy the way that we would see it today. Triage is French for sorting. Under Leray's guidelines, men with the most life-threatening injuries were prioritized, with lower levels of danger sorted into priority under that This seems obvious, but prior to Leray, battlefield wounded were treated in order of rank, and then enemy prisoners were always last. Leray saw all the patients as equals with their treatment determined by medical need rather than any class distinction. 
Each division of this carefully executed system was managed by a chief surgeon, and there were normally 64 men in any medical unit, which included surgeons, orderlies, and nurses. And those personnel were traveling aboard 16 carriages from position to position and bringing with them 12 ambulance wagons and four wagons to carry supplies. The division was managed in a hierarchy in the following manner, as described by Larray, quote, one surgeon major of the first class commanding, with two surgeon's mates of the second class, 12 junior mates of the third class, two of them serving as apothecaries, a lieutenant, steward of division of ambulance, a sub-lieutenant, inspector of police acting as understeward, a quartermaster general of the first class of ambulance, two deputies of the third class of ambulance, a bearer of surgical instruments with a trumpet, 12 soldiers on horseback as overseers to take care of the wounded, among them a farrier, a saddler, and a bootmaker, and a commissioned sergeant major of the first class, two commissioned officers of the second class to precede the ambulance, three corporals retained for the performance of various errands, a lad with a drum carrying surgical dressings, and 25 foot soldiers as overseers to take care of the wounded. Beret further made detailed descriptions of the orders that carts should travel in, what particular supplies each person in each position should require and carry, and even specifications regarding their uniforms. And all of these notes and provisions and details about how this should be carried out were carefully made so that each person could do their job to the best of their ability. General Alexandre de Beauharnais made sure to mention the work of Loray in his reports to his superiors, saying, quote, I ought not to omit the surgeon Major Loray and his comrades with flying ambulances, whose indefatigable care in the healing of the wounded has diminished those afflicting results to humanity, which have generally been inseparable from days of victory and has essentially served the cause of humanity itself in preserving the brave defenders of our country. Uh, Yeah, it's really interesting. There's a lot of talk. I don't go into a lot of detail in it in this outline, but there was a lot of talk at the time of how much just having Larray working on these problems, setting up this system, not only saved people's lives, but also was just a morale boost. Like soldiers felt better knowing there was a, a codified system in place to take care of them. And so they were better at their jobs. And Larray, we should mention, was not the only person that was working on creating vehicles that could go onto battlefields to help soldiers in need of medical attention. We said earlier that there had been a call for the development of a solution to this problem in the form of a battlefield transport for wounded men on the part of the French government. And there had even been a prize offered if someone could design a prototype that was light enough for ease of movement, solid enough to withstand the terrain of battlefields and the constant travel from engagement to engagement and also large enough to carry four to six adult men. 29 designs were submitted to the government, but none were approved or awarded the prize. One that was in development at the same time as Larray's was designed by another French surgeon, Baron Pierre-Francois Percy. His cart was sort of like an elongated, slightly rounded coffin that was filled with medical supplies and pulled by a team of two horses. The idea was that a surgeon would ride with the troops to the battlefield on the cart, which got the nickname Worst Wagon because it reminded people of a sausage. All treatment would happen from this mobile hospital. There was no functionality for Percy's design to carry a soldier to safety or to a hospital tent. Medical staff would still need to cart men around on stretchers. 
While Percy's idea and others were being vetted and discarded, and the government even attempted its own design, LeRae had already been successfully using his ambulance in real-world battles. Napoleon was extremely grateful to LeRae for this innovation, which, as I said earlier, saved the lives of many soldiers and sped up recovery so that men could get back to active duty. The leader said of the surgeon, quote, Your work is one of the most happy conceptions of our age. It will suffice for your reputation. Loray became one of Napoleon's favorites, and he was promoted to surgeon-in-chief of the Army of Corsica. And he got that news while he was returned temporarily to Paris. He was there because he was overseeing construction of more ambulances for more troops, and also getting married to his beloved Charlotte Elizabeth Laville-Leroux. The wedding was barely finished when Loray and his bride left for Toulon on France's southern coast, where Dominique Jean had been ordered to report. His wife stayed with family that lived there while her husband reported for duty, and from there, Loray traveled extensively as needed in the service of the army. He went to Nice and then Spain and then Italy, establishing units to execute his medical system in each location. While he was stationed in Milan, he also established a school of surgery there. Yeah, I don't list them all out here, but basically he was setting up these situations, meta, uh, military hospitals, etc., all over Europe uh, as, as these various engagements went on. And as he continued to work in active battle zones, Loray also pioneered a new approach to amputations. Because a lot of men had limbs damaged in cannon fire, amputations were always an issue during this time in military conflict. Loray developed what came to be known as his 24-hour principle, meaning that he believed the patient's chance of surviving with a limb that needed amputation dropped if he was not operated on within 24 hours. Prior to this, there had been a belief that the surgeon should wait for evidence of dead tissue to make sure that the limb was truly lost before amputating. Under Loray's ideology, the amputation would happen as soon as possible after the injury happened. It was more a matter of really carefully assessing the injury and determining this limb cannot be saved. The idea was that leaving so-called devitalized tissue intact increased the chance of infection and sepsis. Loray actually noted once in his writings that before these ideas were implemented, you almost never saw amputees, particularly amputees that had lost multiple limbs. But he was like, that's because they rarely survive. Additionally, Loray's early study with his uncle had included hours and hours of dissection lab work, so he had a masterful understanding of anatomy. As a consequence, he was able to develop a new method for performing amputations at the shoulder, which came to be known as the Loray amputation. You may recall that when we talked about Robert Liston, he had developed a way of amputating that left extra skin so that the wound could be sutured without the skin being too tight. Loray had a similar idea, but it worked from the opposite angle. He severed the limb above the damage, often close to a joint, leaving enough skin to similarly close the wound with the optimal comfort for the patient. And Loray was also willing and able to perform the very dangerous amputation of the leg at the hip. This was a very controversial operation at the time, and Loray received a lot of criticism from the medical community for doing it. But he was adamant that there were cases when this was the only option. And he wrote, quote, However cruel that operation may be, it is an act of humanity in the hands of the surgeon when he can save the life of the injured in danger. And the more the danger is great and pressing, the more the response must be prompt and energetic. Loray made a number of other strides, not just in field medicine, but in medicine in general. 
He developed a trauma-focused method of pericardiosynthesis, or removing fluid from around the heart with a needle. He designed a new type of needle for suturing that he used on the battlefield. He developed a way to use a patient's breathing to assist in draining wounds. He also realized that extreme cold could be used as an anesthetic, something that he practiced on the battlefield by packing snow onto injuries. And he pioneered the removal of bullets from wounds by making a secondary incision rather than digging through the damaged tissue uh, that the bullet had damaged upon entry. We're going to talk about Larray's continuing service to Napoleon and the power of his reputation in just a moment. But first, uh, we'll take a break and hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. When Napoleon launched his campaign into Egypt, Larray was part of it, and he had arranged for the most promising surgeons from medical schools in Montpellier and Toulouse to be part of the medical staff of the expedition. In total, he had assembled three medical divisions for the journey. The forces departed from Toulon on May 19, 1798, and three weeks later they were at Malta, which quickly surrendered, and then they continued on to Alexandria. The year that campaign through Egypt and Syria wrapped up, which is 1801, Larray was promoted again, this time to Surgeon General of Napoleon's famed Imperial Guard. His cadre of soldiers who had been with the emperor from the beginning and were the most trusted. Larray always served admirably throughout his time as a military surgeon. He was himself even wounded while traveling with the army, and at one point... He was almost captured by the enemy. Later, there is a capture we'll talk about. But he was undeterred in his mission to improve the medical care of France's soldiers. And for his bravery and dedication, the emperor made him a baron on the battlefield at Wagram in 1809. Loret, for all of his work, was incredibly well-respected, not only by the soldiers and leaders of France, but by other armies as well. As French troops fled Russia, special care was made so that Loray, who was with them, could make it to safety. Soldiers are said to have passed him over their heads to ensure that he safely made it across a bridge at the Berezina River. Allegedly, during the Battle of Waterloo, enemy forces were ordered to point their fire away from Loray's ambulance divisions when they were on the field treating the wounded. This is in part because he always felt and shared with his fellow military doctors that all patients, even the enemy wounded, should be treated with care and compassion when it came to their medical needs. I feel like this is kind of a precursor to uh, standards about how wartime medical staff should be treated, like that became more formal parts of international standards later on. Yeah, he was really groundbreaking in this regard. Like uh, we mentioned earlier that normally prior to his work, if you were an enemy combatant that had been captured, even if you were in horrible, life-threatening pain, you still got treated last. Whereas he was like, no, that's not how we're going to do this. Uh, Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo ended with the order of Sauve-Kipu, basically every man for himself. But Dominique Jean Raret and the surgeons who served with him felt that this was against their first obligation as medical practitioners. So they stayed to look after the wounded. And as night fell, the doctors scattered, hoping to evade the Prussian army. But Loray was first shot at and then cut with a saber, and he had passed out and he was left for dead. But then he was captured when he awoke and he realized he could run. He kind of made his way some distance and was captured. And the story goes that just as he was about to be executed, one of the Prussian doctors recognized him, having attended a lecture given by Loray in Berlin six years earlier. 
Having been recognized, he was brought to a field marshal, Blucher, to determine what should be done. It turned out that Blucher's son had been treated as a prisoner of war by Larray, who had saved the young man's life. So in saving an enemy's life, he ultimately saved his own. Larray was taken to Brussels, where he recovered from his wounds, and then he traveled on to Paris to be reunited with his family. When Napoleon was forced to abdicate and was sent into exile in 1815, Dominique Jean Larray paid a price for his association and his loyalty to the former emperor, although it was not perhaps as steep as you might imagine. Uh, initially, his honors and his titles that had been bestowed upon him were taken away, including his rank as inspector general of hospitals and his pension of 3,000 francs. But his reputation created a very high demand for his work. Uh, other nations started asking if he would like to work for them, including Russian Emperor Alexander I, who offered Larray a position as head of his army's medical division. But Larray only wanted to stay in France, and so he turned it down. In 1818, out of respect for Larray and his work, his pension was restored. When the Académie de Médecins was founded in 1820, Larray was named as one of its inaugural members. Louis XVIII made him surgeon of the Royal Guard in 1821. But though things had turned around for him personally, the news of Napoleon's death in May of 1821 hit Larray really hard. Napoleon referred to Larray in his will as, quote, the worthiest man I ever met and left him 100,000 francs. Still grieving the man he had so loyally served, Larray turned to his work for solace. He had been writing a comprehensive guide to surgery, and in 1826, he decided to travel to England with his son, who also became a surgeon, to study surgical techniques there as part of his research. And his report on all that he learned there earned him a place in the Academy of Sciences in 1829. When the three-day July Revolution broke out in Paris in 1830, Loray once again tended the wounded, treating them at the military hospital at Gros Caillou. When the hospital was stormed by armed men, Loray stood up to them and sent them packing, asking, do you know that the sick and wounded here belong to me, that it is my duty to defend them, and that it is also your duty to respect the unfortunate? I love him for so many reasons. Uh, after this, he was sent to Belgium to help them set up their army's mobile medical units. And then he returned to Paris, where he was named as surgeon-in-chief at the Hotel des Invalides. Even then, in his 60s at this point, he kept up a very rigorous schedule. He woke up at 3 a.m. every morning so he could spend several hours writing and researching, and then at 6 a.m. he began his rounds at the hospital. When rounds were done, he lectured to medical students, and then he spent extra time with any of them who had questions or needed additional time with this surgeon who had become a legend in his own time. In the afternoons, if time permitted, Larray visited the wards once again, often checking in on patients who had been soldiers that he had served alongside. In 1834, Larray traveled to Italy with his son, Hippolyte. But first, he traveled south to Bodéon and visited his first teacher, Abbé Grosset, the priest who had taught him as a child. Then he traveled across the southern half of France toward Italy, making a number of stops along the way. In Italy, he traveled to Rome and Florence, where he was warmly received before making his way back to Paris. Despite his advancing age, when the 1835 cholera outbreak hit France, Larray traveled to all of the cities where it hit the hardest. He offered medical assistance, and he reassured both patients and medical personnel that they would get through it, gave them best practices for how to handle things. And then he wrote a very detailed report to his superiors once he returned to Paris. Incidentally, he subscribed to the animalcules theory on how disease was spread. 
Not long after this, Loret retired from his job. When Napoleon's ashes arrived in Paris to be interred on December 15, 1840, Loret insisted on going out into the cold to watch the procession and told the friend who accompanied him, quote, "'Never has my heart, which though I am old, is not hardened, been more agitated by my souvenir.'" Yeah, there is some speculation that Loret's retirement was because he had some sort of disagreement with the government over something having to do with Napoleon, but we don't really know. Loret was very, very loyal to Napoleon for his entire life, um, but the, it's all pretty speculative as to what actually happened. In 1841, Larey made a trip to Algiers to inspect the military hospitals there. And this was a dangerous trip, both because of unrest in the region and because of Dominique Jean's advancing age. Once again, his son was with him. And along the journey, though, Larey's health really deteriorated. He landed back in France at the port of Toulon in July. At that point, he had inflammation in his chest, and he was told to stay in Toulon and recuperate before moving on. But Loret really wanted to see his wife, and so he continued to travel. Loret did not make it back to Paris. He died in Lyon at the end of July, 1842, at the age of 76. What he didn't know when he passed was that his wife had also died at home in Paris, Loret's body was brought to Paris and cremated, and his ashes were interred at Père Lachaise. In 1850, a statue was erected in honor of Loret at the court of Val de Grasse Military Hospital. While Père Lachaise is the final resting place of many luminaries, it was not where Loret had wished to be buried. He wanted his remains to go to Les Invalides, near Napoleon's tomb. 150 years after his death, Dominique Jean Leray got his wish. His ashes were moved in 1992. And in an introduction to a biography about Leray, which was written in 1861, there's a really, really lovely passage that kind of sums up his life. So I thought this was a good point to end on. And it is, quote, Amid the tempest of bullets and the bursting of shells, the French surgeon Leray has been seen calm, intrepid, and also prodigal in the resources of a surgical skill which was incomparable. Non-combatant as Loray professionally was against men, yet his life might be aptly designated a long combat against death. I like him because it's, uh, not only is it cool just in terms of how much he innovated, but it's a fairly uplifting story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he, there's not a lot of surprise misery in it. No. Um, and he really left a, a pretty great legacy. And even when the regime change happened, which we've talked about those things happening on the show many times before, often the people loyal to one regime really get into hot water when the change takes place. But he was so awesome that everybody loved him. Yeah. <laughs> which I, uh, it makes me happy. We need more of that. Yeah. Um, are you are you going to tell us why you wish you had known before he went to Paris? Yes, because we could have gone and seen where he's interred at Les Invalides when we were there. <laughs> um, that was my guess at the beginning. Uh, I was like, I, I have a guess. And I yeah. thought about saying, I'm going to see if I guessed correctly, but I held my tongue. Yes, that's the one. So um, theoretically, if our trip to Italy still takes place at the... Um, uh, now shifted time in October. I'm hoping that my husband and I can do a quick trip to Paris beforehand and then meet up with everybody in Italy. And if so, going back to Les Invalides. Yeah. 
Uh, it's also just cool to look at Napoleon's tomb because it's quite a beautiful space anyway, but it's a beautiful space. And if you are a Doctor Who fan, it also has just a particular resonance. Yeah. And it's just, it's a, a fascinating thing that the tomb alone is a wild design of many tombs within tombs within tombs. But um, it's also just super beautiful. I have I have some silly-ish listener mail pertinent to our times. Um, this is from our listener, Philip, who left a, a question on our Facebook page. He wrote, good evening, ladies. I'm a longtime listener to the podcast, and I believe my first episode was the Lady Jane episode. As we are in the middle of this pandemic, I see all of the panic over toilet paper on the news and posts on social media. And this sparked a query in my mind. Where did toilet paper come from? What sparked the need? When did this item become an everyday need? At first, was this an item for the well-to-do folks thank you for what you do and expanding my knowledge phil uh so i thought i would do the quick rundown on this because it's not really enough to ever make a full episode i don't think um but so you will often see the name joseph gaietti touted as the first person to invent toilet paper uh he was the first to create like a commercial toilet paper uh which was a medicated uh, paper for hemorrhoids that had his name printed on every sheet, which I find kind of adorable. Um, this was kind of slow to catch on prior to this in the U S things like catalogs were filling the same need and they were free. I mean, if you go back in ancient history, there have been a lot of different ways that people have, have done hygienic cleaning, um, including like sponges and water in Rome and, you know, various uses of water throughout periods of time but at this point paper yep fine uh the scott brothers introduced the toilet paper roll in the 1890s because uh gaietti's version was not really catching on people thought it was silly to spend money on it when you can just tear up a catalog toilet paper still a little stigmatized by that point really the thing that kind of moved toilet paper into the more standard and accepted and needed item was the increase of people with indoor plumbing because you couldn't really flush catalog pages without creating a big problem um all of this is a very western view hey the chinese were using <laughs> toilet paper hundreds of years before us going <laughs> back to the sixth century there's evidence of you know even really luxurious scented toilet papers in china way before anybody in the western world ever was like hey you know what we should do uh so um as just sort of a uh pandemic PSA do not flush flushable wipes they are not really flushable um I know the city where I live has issued some warnings that are like hey I know they say flushable on the label but we are seeing a big increase in sewer backups because they're they're not really uh even though they say flushable on the label they are still likely to stop up some pipes especially in places where maybe the sewage system could use some work yeah i feel like that goes for a lot of things that are labeled as flushable right mm -hmm. like <laughs> flushable cat litter is a thing there are many reasons you should actually not flush it including the spread of um toxoplasmosis which especially if you live in a coastal place is very bad for um once that kind of gets into the water table and can get out to the oceans over a long series of things very bad for animals um yeah maybe don't don't flush things. If your instinct is, is this really flushable? Go with no. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember when I was a teen, my mom like specifically taught me that pads are not flushable, but tampons are. And that's also 
false. You should not flush either one. Oh, how, the talks I have had with plumbers over this issue. Yeah. And I'm like, but it says, and they're like, no. Just don't. Uh, don't do it. <laughs> Uh, if you would like to write to us, you could do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media where we got today's listener mail as missed in history pretty much everywhere. If you would like to subscribe to the show, you can do so on the iHeartRadio app at Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you like to listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.